Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. All right. Well, it's been a very busy uh, few weeks uh, or over a month, actually, at this point. Been traveling a lot. Um, I was in Arizona about two weeks ago or three weeks ago now. Uh, South Texas before that. Um, Dallas before that. I was in Alabama last week to go on the Citizen J podcast, which was uh, far too official uh, for someone like me. Um, they had an actual podcast studio and a production team, and uh, they fixed me up with makeup. And it was uh, quite an interesting experience, um, but it was really a good time uh, hanging out with those people. Um, and I look forward to seeing uh, the, the podcast once it's published. But um, yeah, so that was really cool. Um, turned that into a little bit of a Florida trip after going to Alabama, dip down to Florida. Uh, last uh, This past weekend, I just got back from the Hunt Fish Podcast Summit. Um, but uh, needless to say, I've been too busy to uh, catch up on episodes here. I have actually two episodes. I've had two episodes um, recorded. Uh, when I was down in South Texas, I linked up with uh, Aiden Branny and uh, Madeline Thornley. Um, well, actually, her last name changed, but uh, her last new last name escapes me right now. But uh, this podcast will be uh, Aiden's. Uh, Aiden is uh, currently the assistant ocelot researcher for the East Foundation. Um, really a great dude. I've been really passionate about wildlife uh, most of his life, it seems. Um, had a really, he's had a really cool career thus far. Um, and he is like me, he is an early career wildlife professional. Um, but he has really made the most of his short career thus far. And, uh, he has, uh, he recently finished up a master's degree, um, studying bobcats. And, uh, so we talk a little bit about that. Um, we talk about, you know, all the, the general stuff, how we got into wildlife uh, per usual. Um, and, uh, we got to talk a little bit about ocelots, but some of that ocelots are a very, um, sensitive species. Um, they're critically endangered and, you know, any sort of work with a species like that, um, information has to be, uh, carefully considered, um, as far as, you know, sharing it with the public. Um, so we weren't able to deep dive, dive too deep into ocelot stuff, but, uh, he definitely, um, we definitely talk a little, little bit about, you know, just general ocelot conservation and um, a little bit about the cats themselves. Um, Aiden is a very passionate carnivore uh, ecologist. Um, so he really has a lot to say about, you know, bobcats and ocelots and other species. Um, so we talk a little bit about all that. Um, we talk about uh, conservation stuff, you know, hunting, all the regular stuff I like to talk about on here. Um, hopefully it's not too repetitive but um, it's all important stuff and it's always interesting to get, you know, different perspectives from people and, you know, Aiden's from LA. So, uh, you, you know, you, you would expect most people from that, that area to have um, an interesting view on something like hunting. And uh, so we go into that. Um, a lot of general conservation stuff. Uh, we go down a little bit of a rabbit hole into Australia. Um, he actually spent some time there. Um, so I don't want to spoil that, but, uh, Australia is something that I'm personally very interested in currently. Um, hopefully, hopefully 
hoping to get down there pretty soon. Um, what am I missing here? Um, all around is a really great uh, episode. Um, I didn't anticipate running into Aiden. Um, we've been Instagram friends for a little while and uh, happened to get some work down at the East Foundation Ranch, um, which was uh, really one of the coolest opportunities I've had as of late. Um, doing some wildlife photography and uh, hopefully um, all the photos were uh, what they were looking for. Um, I'd really like to get back down there and, and do some more photography work. Um, I really believe in these foundations mission and uniting uh, wildlife conservation and, and ranching. Um, it's just really a, for Texas, it's really a, um, you know, a, a, just a really good model for conservation in a state that is mainly privately owned. Um, and Aiden, you know, talks a little bit about some of that stuff as well. Um, so yeah, really excited to release this one. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, with that, I will end it there and, uh, get right into it. So now I bring you Aiden Branny. Oh, it's a very kind of so, pirate-esque sounding name. So like I, I was guilty of not knowing your actual name and I've been like, before you came over here, I was like, it's Aiden Branny. Yeah. That's hundred yeah. percent it. So I'm, it. I'm here with Aiden Branny. So it's great to meet you, man. It's nice to meet you too. It's been a long time coming. I know we've been uh, chatting a little bit over yeah. uh, social media for a bit, but it's really cool to finally meet in person. Yeah. Face and to face. Very random. We got to set the scene here. We're at one of the most incredible private properties in Texas. Yeah. It's a surreal landscape. Yeah. Do, do you want, do you want to give the context on, on where we're at and, and the, the importance of this place? So we are currently on the El Sal's Ranch down here in South Texas, and it borders right next to the Gulf Coast. And this is one of the, I would consider one of the most special places in the world for carnivores, specifically in the cat world, as it has one of the currently uh, largest densities of ocelots in Texas, and that is yeah. the El Sal's Ranch. Yeah. And, I mean, this this place... It has, you know, some of the original species that have been here for millennia, that, oh, yeah. like still here. You know, the ocelot used to be wide-ranging, maybe not wide-ranging, but all the way up into Arkansas. Louisiana, too. Louisiana. And now, I mean, this is the only place. When I walk around this place, and I, I just, I know I'm not going to see one. It's very, very unlikely to see one. But it's more likely that they're watching you walking by. And that makes me happy, knowing that I could be like currently being watched by an ocelot. Maybe even right now, they're watching us through the window. It's entirely possible. There, I don't know. There was one, uh, we have a couple trail cameras set up throughout, uh, well, more than a couple. We have a whole grid of cameras set up through the entire ranch. And there's a ca camera right on the outskirts of where we're recording. And there was an ocelot so detected like, there just once. Within yards of where we're at. Yeah. Feet of yeah. where we're at. 100%. It's amazing. Um, so this is part of the East Foundation, which is a really cool nonprofit. Yeah. That's uniting cattle ranching and conservation. And it supports science and research and all the rest. Supporting multi-use landscapes. Multi multi-use landscapes, so valuable, and especially in a place like Texas. Um, so, how did you find yourself here? 
So uh, I guess rewind the clock to the dreaded 2020. So <laughs> okay, yep. uh, I was working for the National Park Service as their bobcat ecology intern, uh, you know, just trapping cats, learning how to trap cats, because that was my first carnivore gig ever. Uh, and then I ended up on the Washington Predator Prey Project. You know, I'm living out of a tent catching coyotes and bobcats for another big uh, carnivore research program. And so, you know, I was applying to grad schools all over the place. And sure enough, I saw that there was a master's position at the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute at Texas A&M Kingsville. And I was like, sure, why not? I've applied to 22 other grad programs. I might as well toss my hat in the ring. And sure enough, my uh, advisor that brought me on was like, I like your stuff. How about you come on down and do your master's on Bobcats? So, and you can, you know, also join in on the ocelot action as well. So I was like, well, dream come true. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I guess I'm like, yeah, well, again, I've never been to Texas, but I guess I'm about to find out. So you ended up at one of the most incredible, as we've been saying, one of the most incredible places in the state. When, when I, again, you know, you out west, you know, it's coming from California, you kind of have your own conceptions of what Texas looks like, kind of rugged, rugged rural landscapes. But when I moved down to South Texas, I was shocked at how green it was. Yeah. Like again, I think there's so much in this head in my in a lot of people's heads that it's all flat prairie land and then you have the beautiful mountains of West Texas, but that's all throughout. But then when we started coming down the curve to the tip of the southern tip, I was like, wow, there's actually a lot of trees. There's yeah. actually a lot of brush. And then even when uh, you know I started my program, I was shocked at the sheer level of biodiversity that you find here in South Texas. Yeah. That rivals you know where I did my undergrad at uh, for uh, Cal Poly Humboldt, formerly Humboldt State University, okay. in the Pacific Northwest. So you know, in the middle of redwood forests, yeah. old growth, old forested growth, ecosystems, tons of creatures, great and small. Mm-hmm. But I was not prepared that that same level of biodiversity would be found right here yeah. in the rangelands of Southern Texas. South Texas is a very special place. You know, Texas in general, you know, t- take away our arbitrary boundaries and like just this po- this small piece of the planet is actually very unique, yeah. even on a global scale. Oh, 100%. Um, co- coastline, like our, our, you know, climate is influenced by the coast here. Um, we get, you know, on the east part of the state, we get heavy rainfall. We get the east, the western extent of the deciduous, eastern deciduous forest. And then you go west and it like grays into more and more arid ecosystems and you end up in the Chihuahuan desert go south and you're down here and it's like and the you know Elsaw's ranch in particular is very interesting because it's coastal prairie but it's got these stands of live oaks yeah and tomalip and scrub and mesquites and um i'm really interested in plant communities and plant succession and when i come out here it's just a wonderland of of plant diversity it's so freaking cool man well, I'll tell you this much. I mean, of all the plant communities I've been in, though, there is nothing more painful than walking oh. through Tom Leap and Thorn the, Scrub. The Thorn Scrub is, is tough. I often, tough. I, again, I often come leave the field covered in scratches and uh, and slashes. And people yeah. are like, Aiden, did you get mauled by a cat? I'm like, no, I just <laughs> went crawling through Thorn Scrub. <laughs> you know, you saw that, uh, that, that hog I harvested earlier yeah, out yeah. here. I, when I got down on the ground to... To get in the prone position to shoot. I had a, I took a thorn, a mesquite thorn, straight to the kneecap. My mor- was, my rough. my mortal enemy down here is lime prickly ash and Prick, cat claw. Cat claw is is because it, it curves. It curves. It digs catches into you, you yeah. and you have to like again. The best way, like for folks who can't really imagine what we're talking about, 
it's like biological barbed wire. Yeah. It's, you know, and especially when you're trying to, you know, catch animals or set up traps of any, for any different kind, you have to work with these plants and mm-hmm. they don't necessarily want to work with you. Yeah. And, and basically every plant here has some version of a thorn. So they call it the thorn scrub. Yeah. yeah. At least in that part of the plant community, yeah. less spikes out in the grass, but yeah. I prefer, you know, here at El Salas, I really like the parts that are, um, you know, just the, the little blue stem mm-hmm. with the sable palms and the live oak moths. That, that's just the most beautiful and pleasant migrating dunes cutting across, which are just really cool. Like you can see the plant succession following the dunes because they're, I learned this today from, from Trey, who's been guiding me around, that they they move like 50 feet a year. Yeah. No, they shift all the time. Crazy. It's a wild, surreal, ever-changing landscape, and yeah. that drives the plant communities yeah. that occurs, and that's what drives the wildlife that lives in those plant communities. And then there's, you know, I'm very much, you know, all for getting rid of all invasive, non-native mm-hmm. mammals on the landscape, but driving around here, you see these nil guy running around and it's like damn it's kind of cool actually it is cool but i mean they're the, impressive animals they, they didn't are. ask to be here they're, but they're here they're, and they're thriving they are and, and the, i want to hunt one <laughs> do, you, do you got a check checkbook to, to, to do that right <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no it's it's so wild about no guy just because of, again that was something you know when i think of invasives in the united states i think of florida i think of pythons the, yeah pythons yeah. Iguanas, i think of all the different tegus, reptiles amphibians yeah. But coming down to Texas, I was like, oh, wow, it's we undulates. have that, but it's mammals. <laughs> it's, it's axis deer and yeah. nil guy and uh, red deer. Odd-ad. Yeah. Red deer, feral pigs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting place down here. No, it is. Know. And the wild part uh, in terms of research is the, now this is the part that just wigs me out, is the fact that we know more about nil guy in Texas, where they were introduced, you know, again, over almost over 80 years ago. Than in India. Than in India, where they are native <laughs> to. Like, that is That's wild great. to me that we know more about the invasion ecology of this large, charismatic ungulate than we do even in its native range. Yeah. They're, they're really strange looking. You see them barreling through the thorn scrub, and they're just wild looking. They've got these like, huge bodies, little head. Yeah. You know, they gallop like a giraffe and i'll tell you nothing scares the shit out of you more than when you're in the brush and you just hear a massive just crunching of leaves and branches and it's a barreling bull nil guy that's running through brush that's running away from you but it's it'll still catch you totally unaware my very first time seeing a nil guy i was down here looking for snakes this this area is a hot spot for herpers herpetologists people coming down here road cruising these ranch roads and uh, cruising around for milk snakes with a buddy, and and a nil guy just busted across the road in the middle of the night. Really? And I didn't know what they were. Uh-huh. I was like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I think it would have destroyed this little car we were in. Probably yeah. weighed more than the car. Yeah, no, most definitely. Yeah, no, nil guy are no yeah. joke, especially the bulls. Especially They're, the they're bulls. free range. They're all over South Texas. And they're, you know, 
they're a functioning population. And the crazy part is they're also kind of like ecosystem engineers because one of the things is, you know, there are fences everywhere, but Nilgai, because of how strong and bulky they are, they can't jump over the fences. So they often will burrow underneath fences. I've been using their, their, their burrows since I've been down here. Oh, so have I, so have I, they're great. And, but they also will form paths through the brush, which all the other animals and landscape will hone in on, you know, white-tailed deer, coyotes, bobcats, you name it. They will follow the Nilgai path. So it's interesting, you know, the the automatic response to an invasive species or non-native is get rid of them. Mm-hmm. But as the, the world continues to change and species are moved around, it, it's interesting to think about what what if a species has a net positive impact on a, on an ecosystem? You yeah, know? Yeah. No. And that's that's something. Uh, that's definitely... just kind of a taboo. That's even taboo for me to say. I feel bad <laughs> saying it. But but you know, in the spirit of open mindedness, it's like wow. What if what if a species actually benefited but you, i'm such a purist it's hard to even <laughs> utter those words yeah no i think there's definitely you know pros and cons with yeah. every invasion there's a lot of i think unforeseen consequences yeah. and then those unforeseen can often be bad or positive uh but with nilgai they definitely you know they drive a lot of functional structural functionality within the landscape especially the vegetation but of course, on the other side of that coin, one of the major issues that folks are worried about with Nilgai is, you know, they are a vector for ticks. And especially with oh. cattle fever ticks, that is the major concern with Nilgai because they are so robust that they can break through fences yep. and, and spread if cattle fever yep. tick, you know, break through these barriers. And that's a major problem for landowners. So again, you get into this kind of push pull thing where yeah. you, you know, like the Nilgai because they're, you know, aesthetically they're they're fascinating to look at they drive taste you know, really good taste amazing yeah. and uh, they drive functionality in the ecosystem but then you get into the other side of the coin of like okay so we have this massive ungulate that can bring ticks that will yeah. ch- change people's economies yeah i mean i'm definitely in favor of you know removing all neil guy if possible i don't know if that's possible at this point well, I was shocked by was the fact that, you know, the freezes that we keep having having in South Texas is that those have not killed off the Nilgai. Because, you know, despite their size, they yeah. do not do well in cold, cold climates. Yeah, they're just not part of their, their natural history where and, they evolved. And down here, it got down to, you know, during the freezes, it got down to like 15 degrees mm-hmm. right on the coast. And I, I'm like, to me, I feel like this is almost an extinction level event. But sure enough, they survive and they still keep breeding so yeah. much to my own surprise yeah they're, they're fascinating and they just they 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 add a certain again i'm a purist when it comes to ecosystems i wish we didn't have any invasives but they, they add a unique feel to the place um and it just you know south texas is so unique in many aspects even just in the native biodiversity and ecology but then you have Neil guy you know running around and um just it's just really a unique place all around. But uh, man, what? How did you? Let's back up and and go to where you really discovered your interest in wildlife. That would then lead you finally to this oh, moment here. <laughs> okay, we're gonna rewind yeah. the clock uh, just a little bit. So I think I've always had a fascination and love for all creatures, great and small. Yeah. So, I mean, just a little bit about me. I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I grew up, you know, right next to one of the biggest metropolitan hubs right. in the United States. But with that being said, I was always one of those. And maybe you can also resonate here. I was a major Steve Irwin fan. Oh, yeah, dude. Like, Steve Irwin, I always ask every guest if they're, you know, under a certain age, um, 
I'm like, you probably earned a wildlife because of Steve Irwin. Oh, 100%. Most say yes. Yeah. You know. And I think there was just that raw passion and love and admiration for even some of the most dangerous creatures on earth. And I think that was one of those things that I was like, yeah, this is kind of what I want to do. And, you know, I kind of, when I was a kid, I put on, I want to be an animal explorer. I want to go to like the most far out places. With a camera, with a camera pointed at you. Pointed at you. That the, was the dream, man. That was the dream, right? Be the next per- <laughs> big animal planet personality. And now Animal Planet, I feel, has more people than it does animals. These yeah, days. It's, it's, super it's, really, it's really lame. Yeah. But yeah, uh, speed the time or change time. Uh, you know, I get to, uh, I would want to say around seventh or eighth grade. And then I was kind of like, you know, I was juggling between paleontology because, you know, I also love dinosaurs uh, yeah. and fossils. But I kind of reached a point that why focus on the dead? when there's so much that needs help and like management. And don't get me wrong. I think all paleontology research should be done. It's fascinating. fascinating And it can give us an idea of what information on on what, you know, evolutionary histories and and where it can go. Yeah. Biodiversity in general. Yeah. And so, uh, but I kind of reached this thing where like, I think I need to make my mission to be more on the biology ecology side of things, Mm. environmental science. And so that's what really pushed me. And, I think one of the biggest life affirming uh, adventures that I went on is have you heard of an organization called Earthwatch? Mm-hmm. I've heard of it. I, I don't know much about it though. So it's kind of like a volunteer program. I mean, it probably funded the guise of volunteerism, but again, I was only in high school at the mm-hmm. time and I was still trying to figure out what do I want to study in college? Where, what schools do I want to go to for college? And, and I went on this expedition to, uh, do you know Trinidad? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I was uh, a program in Trinidad. I was helping a, a research program with leatherback sea turtles mm-hmm. in the Caribbean. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I always thought turtles were awesome. I read a bunch about them in books. You gotta but, love turtles. Yeah. If you don't like turtles, you're just an asshole. Yeah. You're, something's, <laughs> something's fucked up with you if you don't like sea turtles. There, <laughs> yeah. There's something wrong. But yeah. so, and I get there. And, you know, it's this, this is a field project. You know, you're on the beach. You're patrolling the beach at night for turtles. You're digging up hatched nests to count eggshells and fragments. But the first night, I'll never, I'll, I'll never fucking forget. The first night I got to meet a female nesting leatherback. And, again, to give for folks who've never met a leatherback, you know, most seats, they're huge. We're talking a six to eight foot sea turtle hauling itself on the beach that's hard for me to fathom i've seen sea turtles you know greens and yeah. you know uh, some of the common gulf coast species the thought of an eight foot carapace on a sea turtle the crazy thing is there's males wild. can get even bigger there's a record of a sea of a leatherback caught off the coast of wales yeah. that was a whopping two tons and was 13 feet long what can you imagine a turtle that big like that again you know that's uh, wild and the craziest part is this animal was alive during the Cretaceous. This is a very old animal. And yeah. again, so, and that's the other crazy part about leatherbacks is that they're the only turtle that makes a sound. Hey, I they didn't make, know that. They make vocal, an audible, vocals, they yeah. grunt. It's a, yeah. <clears throat> because again, you know, I think it's, you're hauling yourself with flippers right. onto the sand, digging. So it's nest. a vocalization, like they're straining. It's not like a communication no no it's just it's just a pure oh. breath vocalization thing i got excited for a second <laughs> i wish it'd be, I cool, wish. it'd be cool if a turtle communicated by sound i wish there was a turtle maybe we'll language. discover that someday yeah. that they you know turtles are very mysterious we don't know what they're doing underwater 
It's yeah. entirely possible, especially yeah. the other backs where they dive yeah. so deep they can break, break yeah. the monitors and uh, right. sensors they put on them. But yeah, so again, I was 15 years old and being in that place, hiking the beach, working. And, you know, we were also working with the locals. I and mean, that was something that made yeah. a big That's impression. Conservation, you, you have to get the local communities involved for it to be successful. 100%. And the you can't na- just barrel in there and, you know, without their support. It's not sustainable. Definitely not. And the nature seekers, they're still running the pro show to this day and they're doing a phenomenal job. And, uh, they are all about inclusion. They're all about trying to empower the people of Trinidad to say, this is our, these are our natural resources and we need to protect them because, you know, leatherback sea turtles are often considered a keystone species because they are. And this is my favorite words I learned when I was in college. Do you know what the diet term is for a leatherback? Mm, No. Gelatinivore. Because they eat jellyfish. Because they are jellyfish obligates. You know, other sea turtles yep. eat jellyfish, but... I'm not surprised they put in a, a vore on that. <laughs> right? There's fruitivore, insectivore. <laughs> yeah. Endless. And so, I've yeah. Never heard of gelatinivore. No, that was that was a first for me. I That's was like, cool. okay. And even, it was funny, I, I, because I did a project in undergrad on leatherbacks, and I wrote that in, with a citation, and right. the professor wrote, That's wow. an awesome term. Obligate? Yeah. Gelatinivore. Obligate. Gelatinivore. Huh. Uh, Interesting. And so, yeah, no. So that was, I think, the first big event. And then I, I was fortunate enough to do another Earthwatch expedition, which kind of launched me into carnivores. And I got to work with brown hyenas in South Africa. Oh, damn. Which that was... Hyenas are a wild species. Especially brown hyenas. Like, I feel like spotted hyenas get a it, lot of yeah. the glory. I don't understand hyena diversity. Maybe you can elaborate. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, in the hyena family, hyena day... You have okay, I didn't, even, I didn't even know it was a distinct family. Yeah, so it's, so base again, you know, hyenas are most closely order related to carnivora. Cats. Yeah, order carnivora. Family hyena day. Sub, and this is where it gets okay. family. You get suborder Filiformia, and that's what includes cats, hyenas, mongooses, civets, etc. Canids. Canids are in Caniformia. Wow. So you have Caniformia. Hyenas are closer to cats than they than are to dogs? dogs. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. This is why podcasting is excellent. <laughs> Never yeah. would have got this information otherwise. But wow. yeah, back and in... Back, also why taxonomy is extremely important. It is. And yeah. uh, so back to hyena day. So there's actually only four species currently of hyenas in the world. And the, the one people know is the spotted. Yes. That's the that's one that the, giggles. That's the one that's all featured in Lion King. Yeah. Uh, but brown hyena, Brown. Brown. And then there's one crazy looking one. You're thinking of Ardwolf. That's not a hyena? It's, it is a hyena. That's the third. There's one more. And there's striped hyena. Stripe, okay. And so that one's more, you get those in kind of Asia and the Middle East. Ardwolf is not African? It is African. It is African. Yeah. Ardwolf, now the crazy thing about the Ardwolf is that, you know, while all the others are kind of bone crunchers, scavengers, do you know what Ardwolves eat? What? Termites. They are an insect obligate carnivore because they're in the order carnivora. Interesting. And so, yeah, so yeah, brown hyenas, you know, they're actually a fair bit more solitary than uh, the kind of classic hierarchy. Spotted. Yeah, yeah spotted hyenas have yeah. this kind of matriarchal uh, system. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think brown hyenas do too. I'm not a brown hyena expert. Uh, but yeah, so in this project, because the, again, there's not a whole lot known overall. I mean, there's a lot of uh, South African universities that are investigating more into brown hyena research, but because they're a lot more cryptic and they're silent. Okay. They don't do the giggling thing that spotted hyenas do, but they communicate. We know this because of Lion King. Yes, of course. <laughs> Lion King, I think, reinforced a lot of unfortunate 
stereotypes okay. into hyenas, and yeah. I think they deserve a lot more love than they get. Yeah, personally. Yeah. Uh, but with browns, they communicate via scent. Okay. They have a dual anal scent gland, and they leave scent markers all over the place, and that's how they communicate often. No need for vocals. No need for vocals. I mean, you know, I'm sure they definitely make some sounds, they'll yeah. growl and stuff, but they don't have the kind of vocalizations that you see in kind of large. And do you know what you call a group of hyenas? No. So it was a Scottish Scottish naturalist that first you know carved the way for hyenas, and he decided to call them clans. Clans. So okay. you know how you have a pride of lions? Yeah. You have a clan of hyenas. That's cool. I like that. So that's, yeah, that's when, uh, again, I was 16 at this time. And, wait, uh, wait, what brought you to, to do the this brand is hyenas? Watch. That, that's the same. Okay, is, so I was yeah, like, I'm hooked on this. Here. I want to do it again. Yep. And this project, uh, you know, just you have the magical moments where you get to touch the sea turtle. I got to right. put a pit tag in it and stuff. The hyena project was scat counting. <laughs> So, not as glamorous. Not yeah. as glamorous. A lot, of, a lot of conservation is not glamorous. It is very much a dirty world yeah. in the conservation world. Yeah. But I was lucky enough. I got to see two brown hyenas the whole trip. Got to see lots of the other classic African wildlife. Yeah. What, what, what country again? South Africa. You were in South Africa. So I was next to Pillinsburg National Park. Okay. Which is, I want to say, two to three hours east of Johannesburg. I okay. Think. You're 16 yeah, at this 16. point. And you're, you're getting... You know, a real life experience in wildlife biology already. That high schoolers don't even, or even yeah. undergrads really I mean, yeah, get I mean, a chance to do that. Plenty of undergrads just never even see the field until they graduate. No. Which, uh, if you're listening and you're an undergraduate student in biology, get out in the field. Don't take summer classes, right? Get out in the field and get experience. Get a feel for it. And that yeah. was, I think, the other more important thing that. I at least learned when I was undergrad is try a bunch of different things. And try different different species, different areas, different different you know, systems. Different systems. But yeah. the crazy thing is because you know actually what group of taxa I have the most of on my resume? What? Birds. Wow, you're a bird nerd? Oh, hundred percent. Wow. I have an e bird. All all I think about is what what you know, I've been keeping up with your stuff for a while is carnivores. Yeah, I love carnivores, but, but you know, I mean, most that characterizes your career at this point for sure, but your personal interest does lie with birds oh my personal i'm again i if it <laughs> when i was yeah. in undergrad i did every single vertebrate taxonomy course that was offered yeah, at my same end. well i tried i didn't actually succeed i missed mammalogy oh you didn't get ma'am no oh that's unfortunate it I'm didn't sorry. fit with my schedule man that's rough it fit with my schedule but it was a very hard course apparently this oh, yeah, oh well <laughs> ma- ma- ma'am ain't it was the hardest out of ornithology and herpetology so rodents and bats yeah. in ma'am is the fucking worst. Yeah. I props to all the chiropterologists and rodentologists out there. Cause you got to get real comfortable with tiny features. Yeah. If you want to hang out in that space, but I will say when I took just the intro to all these ologies is natural history of the verts. I thoroughly enjoyed the mammalogy section of that and had full intentions of taking mammalogy, but it just never fit my schedule. But yeah, so, and that was the thing that I actually, and that's the funny, there's actually a lot of crossover. So, you know, I got, uh, one of my first research gigs was with burrowing owls out oh, wow. at, uh, at Boise State and with the Raptor Research Program okay. I did in RU. And after that, I got to join the Humboldt Bay Bird Banding Observatory. Okay. And that was a full year of just volunteering, banding birds oh, for the l- station. Let's keep on the timeline here. Yeah. So you, you went from Earthwatch? And that's high school, so we're an undergrad now. So you skip to undergrad. You end up at what school? 
again? Uh, Cal, Cal, currently known as Cal Poly Humboldt, but formerly Humboldt State University, okay, which is one of you, the, in my opinion, is one of the best wildlife schools in the West. It has a wildlife and fish or wildlife program, or is it wildlife biology? It, it's wild. It's a wildlife major, but you have different options, okay. like different flavors of wildlife. Yeah. And so I was one of the wildlife options. So like, so like, I guess now, or you just finished graduate school at Texas A&M Kingsville. Yeah, we'll get my, into that with my masters. And like that school has a, like a very specific wildlife program, range and yeah. uh, wildlife yeah. management. Was was that kind of like what you did for your undergrad, or was it more uh, just biology, not as much of the management and natural resources? So a little bit different. So I think there was def- excuse me, a little bit more foundational courses that were put into my undergrad yeah. in terms of foundational per- papers, biology, biology courses in zoology, zoology yeah. Yeah. having a firm grasp of in the sciences, in the sciences. Yeah. But on top of that, though, there's they they are very much a hands-on school, so they're all about management courses. Like they right. have ta- uh, taxa specific classes. Like okay. if you want to do herpetofauna management, if oh, you wow, want to do okay. mammals wow. management. Okay, so you did get waterfowl. some management ecology yeah. type stuff. I did, ironically. Pedophile management. Okay, that wow. was my management course. Uh, but they cool. often would do carnivore management too. Uh, but they humble. You know, it doesn't. They don't have a whole lot of money orientated towards research. I mean, it's a PhD, not um, a non-PhD granting okay. institution. Right, so right. they do masters, but they don't go beyond that. But I will say though, the quality of undergrad that comes Get you out, out in the field. A, yeah, yeah. Like you, you, really and that's important. and Humboldt folks have a reputation. Yeah, like just as uh, Texas A and M and Texas A and M Kingsville, at least in this region, have a reputation in, in wildlife. That's how it is that's for Humboldt. Uh, but yeah, so all of this bird manning, this happened in the later stages of uh, my undergrad. Okay, and so uh, you know, I did all this bird banding, but it's funny, you know, because I was mentioning that I did the bobcat trapping internship. Right. So many of the skills that you need to do carnivore captures come from bird banding. Oh, wow. There's, again, so much of it is attention to detail. You're monitoring the animal that's in your hand. Right. You're being dexterous. One hand's writing down right. data. Other hand's measuring. It's all about also being fluid and and uh, making sure that everything is streamlined. Like you right. do things in a certain way so that the whole process goes quickly and smoothly as possible. Right. Because, you know, when you have, when minimize you have, stress. And yeah. get, collect good data. Yeah, and that's the and but also at the end of the day, the most important thing is monitoring the animal. Right. And you know, with yeah. birds, you don't have to put them under anesthesia. Right. But with you know the carnivores, yeah. they have to be under, right. and that takes another level of monitoring right. in order to make sure all goes well. Because you know, for most birds, you know, you want to have that bird in hand probably ten minutes max. Yeah. And but with a carnivore capture, again, you know, depending on how, what drug what you species use and, and what species. What you're doing. But for me, with most of my captures, they only go for about an hour. Okay. That's still a long time. But it's yeah. a long time, but, yeah. you know, when you're trying to get blood, you're trying to all right. get all the samples, all the measurements, you take your time as needed. All right. So you did the bird stuff, you graduate undergrad, and then... More bird stuff. Did more bird stuff. Yeah. So you did. Some, did you do some like tech jobs and yeah, stuff? Yeah, I did. I actually worked for Cornell and I studied redback fairy wrens in Australia for six months. Oh shit, dude, <laughs> that is badass. I was actually yeah. supposed to be in Australia this week. Where are you? What I was going to go to New South Wales. New South I, had, Wales? I bought tickets for New South no. Wales. And then why uh, didn't you go? Well, I had an opportunity to come here for one in East uh, Foundation. Wouldn't they, you know, enlist me for work? I don't mm-hmm. pass that up. That's fair. Also, I had like stuff for my job, and uh, it just started to fill up. I was like, I'm gonna pull my tickets, get my refund, and go back in like June ish. 
I want to go back in June anyway because that's when a lot of the orchids are going to start blooming. Uh, and my yeah, yeah. my major interest in Australia is not just herbs, it's plant diversity the and plant birds. Are, the plants are surreal over so, there. Anyway, it's funny you bring that up because yeah. it's like, yeah, I was supposed to be there literally this week. Wild. Um, but uh, so, yeah, fairy wrens. Yeah, so I was, I was in uh, Queensland for my time. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so I was uh, by uh, Brisbane and the yeah, southeastern. I was, was going to fly into Brisbane and drive just into new south wales it's a fun town it, that whole area has like beautiful mountains Cor- and interesting and, plant diversity and a shocking amount of rainforest yeah i think i think yeah, that's no, a, yeah. people think, don't realize australia's coastlines are all rainforest there is yeah. so much rainforest yeah. on australia and that was the crazy thing because i was after my gig ended i went up with my dad to have you heard of the daintree rainforest that when i'm go back <laughs> <laughs> when I pulled my tickets, I was like, I'm actually kind of glad. The, the main reason I was going to go to Brisbane is because I have a friend that's doing his PhD there, and he was, mm-hmm. was going to go stay with him, and uh, he, he studies frogs. And also, there's a an orchid nerd there that was going to show me around. But then when I pulled my tickets, I was like, all right, well, if I want to go back, maybe I'll go to Cairns instead, because mm-hmm. I want to go to the Dane Trees, the oldest rainforest in the world. Cassowaries are running about. Fucking amazing herps. Yeah. So you went to the Daintree. I went to the Daintree. How was it? I, oh, man. Like, again, it's one of those things when I think everyone just assumes that the Amazon rainforest is older because it's bigger and it yeah, covers no. some bigger plants. No. No. The plants and even the wildlife, it's so primordial. Pre- prehistoric. It makes the Amazon look like a toddler in comparison yeah. to how, again, how... Tree ferns. How primitive. And, then by, and by primitive, I mean just how evolutionarily old... So many of the plants are. They the, have the tree ferns, right? Like, yeah, are one of those species. Yeah, that that makes it feel really old. Yeah, and that that really is an old. I can't remember the the, the genus or the family that those tree ferns are in, but I mean, they're there's a like they form part of the canopy. A fern yeah. a forms fern. the canopy, and then you have all these other. I mean, I think the, it's so funny. Like the, everyone, when you go to Australia, they warn you, "Oh, watch out for sharks," or "Watch out for dingoes; they're going to eat a okay. baby." Uh, and then, or venomous snakes. But you know, what was the one thing that terrified me the most? Cassowary. No, oh, it's really? a plant. A plant. Yeah. Really. You ever hear of stinging tree? No. So stinging tree is actually in the nettle family. So you know how they're stinging nettle in yeah. the states. It's easily avoided because yeah, low growing. So sting, imagine a tree form. Stinging tree is that, but on steroids. Fuck. So it has another morbid name in the country. It's also known as suicide tree. Wow. So it's, you know, similar g- deal. It's, uh, you know, it's a, usually a low-lying brush that's covered in tiny little bristles. Mm-hmm. And if you, touch your, if you touch these bristles, it's often described as electrifying. Fuck. And it's extremely painful. And the only way to really treat it was with hydrochloric acid to try and... But again, if it's still in you... Or, you know, the hairs are still in you. Yeah. They are going to cause a lot of pain. And, you know, sometimes it resolves within a week, sometimes months. Sometimes the pain never goes away. And oh. that's the crazy part is how literally just a single touch can have such a life-changing really? moment. Yeah. And seeing, I, and, and I glad ran. you're telling me now because I, 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 I will be in Karen at some point this year. I'm... Oh, you don't worry. You you, you get it down in Brisbane too. In Brisbane too. <laughs> it's up and of, up all in the, down the rainforest, and uh, that's a while. I'm glad I know about it now. Yeah, stinging tree is no joke, and I saw it both in tree form and also in brush form. And you, brush form is the worst because it blends in so well with all the rest of the rainforest. Did you spend all of your time in the rainforest? Did you, did you go into where it starts to 
transition into more shrubs and desert? So I didn't actually do a whole lot in the outback. We went out a couple times. I got to see some emu in the wild. Okay. And some, of course, did you see cassowary? I did. I when I was a dude. How was that? Oh man, it's it's so well. I'll tell you, it was crazy. So you know, we were. I, I had this whole list and plan of all the shit that I wanted to see when I was up there, yeah. and you know, we hit the Great Barrier Reef. Got to do that. That just needed because actually, so one other thing at uh, Humboldt, I have a minor in scientific diving. Oh shit, that's cool. So uh, I want that's the Great Barrier Reef was a big checklist item. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and By the then, way, w- would you say Cairns is the best place to check off all the cool shit in Australia? Uh, a lot of it. Great Barrier Reef, oldest rainforest, cassowaries, saltwater crocs, tablelands. Yeah, the table. Yeah, uh, definitely. I would say it's hard. Can, it's hard because Australia's big and it's got so much. But Cairns is going to deliver. When I was trying to figure out the best place to get the best bang for my buck, because it's an expensive trip and yeah. it's a freaking haul over there. And like, you know, I still want to go to Brisbane because there's orchids I'm really interested mm-hmm. there. Um, but uh, Cairns seemed like best bang for your buck. 100 oh, percent. Like to get and like if I see a cassowary, it's literally going to change my life. It's I'm cr- obsessed with him. So yeah, no. So uh, I had this whole list of critters that I'm like, okay, these. This is what I want to try and see in the limited time that I have here. And on that list was I really wanted to see a tree kangaroo. kangaroo. That's again an arboreal kangaroo. Yep. It's just it's insane. Really strange. Right? Really wanted to see a cassowary. Yeah. And then uh, was also hoping to see a croc. I got yeah. all three. Saltwater fresh. Saltwater. Okay. I want to see both. There's a freshies around too. I think salties are no joke, man. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I've worked with them in captivity. They're they're fast, mean. They're and they're fat again. You you would think because of their size that they would be slow. Mm, they are no. stupid fast. Yeah, and most crocs, I you know, I've done a lot of croc education and worked with crocs a lot. That characterized my career starting out. And uh, I'd always tell people, yeah, you know, I don't like to use the word aggressive for any species of crocodilian yeah. until I worked with salties. I will, I will throw around the A word with salties. They mean asshole? Aggress, aggressive or asshole. Oh. <laughs> Both. Both, in fact. I've always avoided aggressive around the public because like, I don't want people to get the wrong Negative idea. Of their especially behavior. over the carnivore. You know? like, their behavior is much more complex than just they're super aggressive and they want to kill you. They're like, smart. They're, these are calculated animals, but I go down the rabbit hole of crocs. Right. I can go on and on about crocs. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, to the cassowary. So I was sitting with my dad and I'm like, okay. This is our grand plan. I'm like, we can try this spot for cassowaries. We can try this spot over here. We can try this spot over here. And if all else fails, I know that there's a habituated cassowary that's on a beach in Cairns. I'm like, again, I just, I'm looking to cross this bird off my list. And my dad's like, okay, this is mine. Again, we're sitting at breakfast and this place is in the middle of the rainforest, mind you. Five minutes later, a male cassowary with its chick wanders oh, right in the middle of the tables as my dad and I are eating breakfast. And my dad just, again, I see the cassowary first and my jaw just drops. I'm like, my God. And my dad's like, what? And I like point and he's like, oh shit, that's a cassowary. Dude. And that's something I didn't it's know. My favorite, I think it's my favorite species in the world of any, of any, of any critter vertebrate species. Cassowary. Do you know that they're paternal brooders? No. I That's, don't know much about them. So, yeah, I learned a lot about purely them. Purely, I like them purely out of the aesthetics and, uh, like... And their velociraptor-like qualities. Yes. Bring, brings you back. Yeah, it does. They shouldn't be here to now, right now. Yeah. Today. No. And so that's the funny thing that I learned. I learned a lot about their ecology. Is yeah. that you know, I would like to appreciate them more, actually, on their ecology. So, yeah, they're t- technically, I mean, especially around Aboriginal culture, they often regard them as kind of forest guardians, which is actually okay. kind of true because they are frugivores. 
And so they are plant, they they are major plant dispersers in the forest ecosystem. And the one thing that I was surprised to learn is that, you know, males are big. Guess who's even bigger? Females. Females. Like we're talking six to seven feet big. And the males are about like kind of like five, uh, five foot range, which is, that's still kind of terrifying. Big big bird. Big bird. Uh, But yeah, but the thing is the males are the ones who raise the chicks. Yeah, you mentioned that with a male with a chick. I didn't know. And so, yeah, they're paternal brooders. And so, you know, it kind of, you know, just there's, as as you know, in ornithology, there's tons of different reproductive strategies. Birds are extremely diverse. Polygyny. And, but, you know, in the cassowary word, they're polyandrous. So you'll have a female that has a harem of dudes that she'll be like, okay, I'm going to have an egg with you. I'm going to have an egg with you. She's the one calling the shots. Calling the shot. Hey, she has the size. She calls the shot. She's got the claws and she's like, okay, bye. They don't run around in flocks though. No, they don't. Completely solitary. solitary. Uh, I wish they did. Wouldn't it be cool? (laughs) Walking through the dame tree and flock of freaking cassowaries. I mean, you walk into a cassowary, you better be careful because that bird is, you know, most, again, they've been over sensationalized. They get over sensationalized, but you also do have, you you don't want to be too close. Watching, you know, the crocodile hunter growing up. That's when I first learned of them. And even Steve would like kind of like, oh man, these, these birds are very dangerous. You got to be very careful around them. And I always had in my head that they would just come out of the brush and like kill you. That's, That's what I grew up with. <laughs> to me, I think it's more like if you think of them as kind of like bears. Yeah. They're just one of those things that you I just mean, keep your distance. Has a cassowary ever killed somebody? Yeah. I mean... They've been literally like, like oh, that's common? Be- belly, not common, but if someone in the wrong place at the wrong, wrong time. time. And just, again, you scare the cassowary and yeah. it, they will gut you with their, with their, with their toes. That's, that's the, that's a true story. I mean, yeah. again, it's not like an epidemic. A turkey could probably if it, if got it you right. Wanted to. Yeah, sure. But Dude, by the way, speaking of cassowaries, I, you know, I've been thinking about cassowaries a lot lately and just large birds that walk, you know, all the ratites. But, you know, yes, but I was here at the East Foundation today, and I saw turkeys coming. Um, All the Rio Grande? Yeah. I laid down to get photos, and they just kept coming. And then before you know it, they're surrounding me. Wild. Two feet away in one of them. Couldn't ask for a better money shot. I got cool shots, but I was like, you know, we don't have cassowaries or any ratites, but uh, I I haven't said that in so long. Ratites. That's the the family of kiwis, cassowaries, oh, what others? The you also very have, ancient group of birds. Yes, tinamous. You also have ostriches. A family or is it a suborder? It's a, it's an order. Is it, it is an order. Yeah, so okay. it's kind of an order that includes the emu, cassowary. Okay, emus ostrich. too. Yes, yeah. Ostrich, yeah, yeah. So yeah. kind of all the large flightless birds. And, uh, and very important in the penguins. in the evolutionary story of birds. Yes. Yes. Anyhow, We're huge turkeys are not part of this. <laughs> um, I wish we had a. A rat tied here, but I mean, we're close when to you see turkeys out on the landscape up close. I felt like I was surrounded by prehistoric creatures today on the East Foundation they, Ranch. They're very saurian looking, I grant you. And you know, they, the way they walk and like just the sounds they make and the gobble, gobble, gobble. It was cool. And you know, it, it's not quite like a cassowary, but I had a very special, very special experience with turkeys today. So I, I'm, pro, I'm pro special turkey experiences. No, turkeys are badass. Um, so yeah, <coughs> wrap up Australia before we talk about that for yeah. An hour. So uh, yeah, so again, I was over there, f- saw yeah. over 280 different species of birds, yeah. uh, and I had a phenomenal time. And yeah. then came back to the states. I and that's what ultimately leads to my time in the National Park Service that brings me here. Actually, where, where was that at? 
In the Santa Monica Mountains. Okay. So Mountains. right bird in work. LA. Uh, not actually bird no, work. was your first predator job or carnivore But girl. before the predator was herp work. Oh, you did herp stuff. I was doing red-legged frog work as well as kind of herpetophonic it's community stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was... That's cool. It was a good time and it was yeah. kind of over well, uh, You've covered some taxa at yeah. this point. And I think, and I think that's really important because yeah. you know, even though, again, I've kind of specialized in the carnivore realm, mm-hmm. I think that being able to experience and learn from other taxes and other systems makes helps you. you, helps you. And, yeah. it, and it gives you also kind of a bigger view in terms of what the role of this animal is in yeah. the system. And I feel like some people get really in the weeds. Narrow. About, narrow. And it yeah. can be anything beyond just carnivores. Yeah, but, they, or... but they lose context to the ecosystem. And even if you don't have the opportunities to, to get, you know, different types of jobs working with different groups of animals, just being a good naturalist and becoming interested in different groups is extremely valuable. And, you, you know, know, to me, the other side of it that I think is also really great is the landscape becomes more familiar to you. Yeah. I think, like... If more people knew about the diversity that's in their landscapes mm-hmm. and they actually knew the names of, oh, that's that bird. Oh, yeah. that's that snake. Do you know how yeah. empowering that is yeah. to have a landscape it's, that is much makes more you familiar appreciate. to you and it's yes. less kind of foreign or alien? Mm-hmm. You appreciate it more and you're more equipped to want to conserve it yeah, and actually make change, you know, and, and get you're involved. You're invested. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, definitely. Yeah, and pl- you know, plants are. I'm sure you've. I don't know how much you've done with plants, but it's it's very good to know something about plant communities. Hundred you know? percent. In my undergrad, it's super funny. They yeah, made a lot of people get very jaded on plants. Though. Oh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I had a rough plant taxonomy professor in undergrad, but they made all the wildlife majors do three different botany classes. About and habitat. It's all the wildlife. All habitats up because yeah, again, this ranch we're on is you know big on quality habitat management. You know, we're driving around today and there's huge tracks of, of grass on that have been burned recently. And it's, it's you know, this plant succession has already begun and it's coming back green. And that's how you maintain a fire adapted landscape. And we're going to have more fires coming in soon this more weekend. Fire, yep. We're going to be starting another burn. And that's how you get. And that's the other part is I think a lot of folks don't realize is how much North America is it's built fire. by fire. Yep. It is a landscape. Probably the, the by world fire. over. The world over. But, you know, particularly... I, I think especially when we look at... Certain latitudes are more, you know... Latitudes... The Amazon and the Congo were not fire. No, they definitely were landscape. But when we often... Too much th- rain. No, definitely too much rain. But when we often think of North America when the first, you know, white folks from Europe came over, I think everyone thinks of it as, oh, this is a total wild environment when, yeah. you know, it was... Uh, it was still <laughs> influenced by humans. Still influenced by humans, managed by the indigenous peoples of America, and yep. their number one tool for this landscape fire. was fire. Yep. That is how they created these this bounty of... Yep resources that they depended upon was through fire use but even before them you know the the savannas and grasslands of of north america and you know and the presence of large herbivores you know that's how a lot of these grassland communities evolved in the with first bison place. Yeah, yeah with bison yeah and fire and it's always interesting when people um talk about um and it's you know when you read about fire ecology and stuff it there's always mention of um you know the indigenous people how they were the ones lighting the fires, but also lightning strikes and right. like, I'll, I'll, you know, indigenous people have been here for a long time, but they, you know, these fire adapted communities were here before them. Right. You know, so I think it was other, just kind of an interesting, like 
I think the one thing that I think that has, uh, at least just in my time in ecology, is at least reframing what disturbance really yeah. represents. Because I feel yeah. like every time when we, th- again, when bad. we're little, we think yeah. disturbance is bad. Yeah. Oh, a fire is bad. A hurricane is yeah. bad. But so many communities actually need disturbance yeah. intervals. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's what leads to the awesome spectacles that right. we have out there is that there are regular disturbance regimes that allow for the heterogeneity of the landscape. Right. And not all, not all plant communities are need disturbance. No, you know, like a, a late successional bottomland hardwood forest in East Texas has species that evolved to that stage to, to big old growth trees with cavities, you know, ivory built woodpeckers. Like th- those are not heavily disturbed communities. You're not one of those it's folks not. that still believes ivory builds. Oh no, but I'm just okay. Just, that was just the, <laughs> the species that came to mind that relies on old growth, right, 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 bottomland right. hardwoods, and that, that's not a fire adapted no, community. You know, 100%, it's like 100%. not all plant communities rely on fire, but you know, all of our grassland type plant mm-hmm. communities, fire is a part of the landscape. The species, the plants and animals evolved with fire. It's part of it. Continent you know, of fire. Yeah. So now you you, you end up here. You know, you did your master's project on bobcats. Yeah, so bobcats were my primary uh, research focus for the past two years. And I was studying the effects, you know, similar as we've been talking about, is landscape heterogeneity. And, you know, one of the biggest tools that a lot of land managers in, uh, you know, in South Texas use is brush sculpting Mm -hmm. and brush clearancing through either prescribed fire, mechanical clearing, or aerial herbicide. And a lot of this is done to generate a lot of early successional forage, which right. is great for white-tailed deer. Right. It's great for northern bobwhite. Right. And so, you know, again, so there's all these laser-targeted management strategies. For game species. For game species, main, but main. no one's ever actually evaluated yeah. how this impacts carnivores. And so my project was all around that because uh, there's a ranch out west known as the Hickson Ranch. And they do mechanical clearing and, you know, brush control. And so I was, you know, I had a bunch of GPS collared bobcats out there and I was trying to understand how do they respond or select for habitat when this really unique environment, you know, from landscape ecology perspective, it's a really fascinating system because you have this, again, you know, we always kind of hope for heterogeneity in the landscape whenever we study any animal, but when you have such a precise interval and that's something that can drive ecosystem processes. And that's what we saw is that, you know, and we created all these heat maps of selection. And you can see that there is clearly a selection response where probability of use in the brush clearances goes down by bobcats. Because, you know, at the end of the day, they are an ambush predator. Yeah. They need to have cover before they pounce. They're not, they're less cursorial than coyotes are as, you know, they just go foraging and hunting yeah. around in groups. But then you compare that to the large intact brush patches, which is great bobcat real estate. And you have, again, it's this kind of pushball thing in that, you know, we create all these clearances, which, you know, may be great to grow fawns, may be great to grow whitetails, but that can maybe also at the same time curtail how often bobcats are in those areas and how often are they, you know, foraging on my fawns. Now, again... I'm not one of those who kind of buys into the narrative that bobcats are a big deer, fawn, fawn killer. Yeah. Some some folks uh, do believe that, and yeah, again, an excuse to whack bobcats. Yeah, it's an <laughs> excuse to whack bobcats. But 
I, because again, in my opinion, like I think coyotes are much <laughs> more likely to munch your fawns than yeah. bobcats are. But at the same time, it is still interesting to see how yeah. a landscape level management strategy changes how a bobcat perceives its environment. Right. And so that was what a lot of my research was so for one of my chapters. In my second chapter, I was looking at how the thermal landscape changes okay. and all this heterogeneity and how that drives both uh, occupancy or probably of occurrence of a carnivore in a given location. Like thermal cover? It's like, yeah, mean, kind of like yeah. thermal cover. But actually uh, more interesting that. is thermal yeah. buffering capacity. Okay. So again, when we think of like, say, a location that's has no vegetation, so no grass, no nothing, completely exposed to sun, yeah. that's the full, you know, full exposure. But other sites where you might be under a bush, it might be out some grass. That structure creates buffering effect, you know, shade. Right. It yeah. creates a buffering effect that can keep that location cooler or even warmer during Depending certain on, parts of the yeah. day. Yeah. And so that was one of the thermal metrics that I actually really did look at. And we actually did find actually that there is a significant effect on buffer on buffering capacity on, uh, on these carnivores. Right. But what was interesting what was it was the exact opposite and that some animals actually selected f- against the buffering capacity, which I think that might be more of a factor of that. They're responding more to the landscape structure okay. than they are responding to the thermal conditions. Okay. But it's still an interesting proxy metric to look at when yeah. you're trying to understand th- how, how crucial of a factor is thermal condition relative to vegetation cover. I got you. And you're trying to separate those two variables. Just, uh, you know, bobcats in general, I mean, they're, they're a common species. Yeah. In fact, I guess, I mean, is it hard to get support to do a project on bobcats? Because they're not a game species. They're not endangered or threatened. They're varmint. They're <laughs> a pest species to most people in Texas, right. which is very unfortunate. You know, I think bobcats, um, you know, they're the, our main, you know, feline on the landscape. Yeah. Still well, well, throughout North America, throughout North America. I think it, it would be very unfortunate if they ever did decline up. Luckily they're so successful and they're such habitat generalists. They can survive an urban suburban rural, everything like yeah. different plant ecosystems. That's great. That's a great thing about bobcats. Right. But, um, yeah. So, was it was it hard studying a a non game species like as far as like funding and like was not, that just not really? I mean, I was you went to the right school. For I that. went to the right school yeah. and I had the right program and yeah. I know that the landowners they love and so and it's super funny because you meet uh, one landowner who's kind of like oh bobcats whatever I don't give yeah. a shit <laughs> whatever you can do whatever you will. But then you meet others who are like, oh, I love bobcats. Yeah. Like, you know, we have, you know, people like sh- shoot coyotes to high heaven, but we have this rule that we don't no want, and no bobcat yeah. kills, which I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, again, yeah. And so it's, it's funny how like, you know, one property can be like a safe haven, yeah. but then the next property over can be like, nah, right. we're going we're gonna <laughs> to yeah. mow these bobcats down. Thankfully, it, no matter what a landowner feels about bobcats and what, however they manage them, you know, they're, they're going to be fairly successful. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of those people that, oh, they'll kill hundreds a year, maybe even. I, and not even and make it, a That dent. doesn't even make a dent. Well, it's the same thing great. even just with coyotes, yeah. too, is yeah. just, you know, we have, they, 
like we're like oh i'll just shoot as many as i need to but i'm like unless you killed every single coyote in a 500 square mile radius you're not doing anything anything. and even then even if you did that it would only be a matter of time before coyotes completely recolonize that space which is an interesting philosophical point about like you know there's like these predator contests where people like stack them up and Mm -hmm. like as a hunter myself i work in the hunting industry now and i think that it's a bad look for hunters and I don't really relate with people that do that. No, nobody I associate with in the duck hunting world or deer hunting world does predator contests. It's just weird. And, What's but the, the good thing is I, I don't actually spend a lot of time thinking about it or mm-hmm. really concerning myself with it. Cause like they're not doing anything like the populations are fine, which is good. It, it, it both makes it to where like their reasoning for doing that is to control, but they're not controlling anything. So it's, it's just for it's the just, sport. It's for their sport. It's sport. Event. And, like there's people that are like very passionate about that issue on both sides. And I'm like, I can fight over that. Coyotes and bobcats are still on the landscape. I think it looks bad on hunters, but it's, it's sustainable. So I don't know. It's one of those weird, weird battles that I choose not to fight. Although I'm mentioning it now. <laughs> it's, it's one of those, th- I mean, again, for me, I'm like, I don't really, yeah. I, because I actually, uh, about a year ago, I actually got to go hunting for the first time. Yeah. It was something that, you know, I had done fishing throughout my life, yeah. but what, if you grew up in went, LA, it's not, it's not something you have access to. Not a whole lot of, yeah. and it was one of those things that I was, you know, particularly because I, I used to have completely different views on hunting yeah, right. when I was in, uh, when I was in high school. And right. I think that came from a lot of lack of understanding the history yeah and also a lack of understanding just what hunting looks like and, and population ecology in general and population yeah. ecology and you know again i think so much of when in my youth like when i thought of a hunter i think of it as some rich asshole who goes and shoots cecil the lion or something <laughs> you know and so when or poachers I, you know poachers, killing yeah, the, hundreds of animals and, and, stacking, and that's yeah. and then that's why i think a lot of my viewpoints were originally yeah. but then i did my undergrad program at humble and they made me realize how so, integral hunters so. are to the conservation mechanism yeah in the United States yeah. and even the world it over could be applied elsewhere, but you know, due to different cultures and socioeconomic situations, yeah. it's not, but it is one of the more successful, possibly the most successful model in any modern society. Right. I mean, and also at the same time, you know, human and I, I, it's something I say that's ironic. I think there would be more vegetarians and vegans out there if they actually went hunting. Because right. I think for a lot of folks who like, and that was something that I think I needed to demonstrate to myself that I could go out, harvest an harvest animal, an animal yeah. butcher it, my, and also butcher it. I think there's yeah. something that I don't think Connect, a lot, there is not full connection, full yeah. connection to the experience. And I also cook with it. Like yeah. it's not just, you know, harvest the meat, take it. You also have to work with it. Mm-hmm. And so I went javelina hunting on the King Ranch. That's super cool. I would love to harvest to have, I've, I've shot them in Mexico before, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's a, like we, we gave them away to locals. I didn't right. get to eat it myself. It's, it's actually quite tasty. Yeah. And I want to eat one so bad. And it was one of those things that like, I, I you know, I love to cook. I yeah. love to create culinary yeah. dishes, great and small. Yeah. But I took so much pride in that, in this, <laughs> in this Mexican stew that I made. With javelina. Hav- fresh javelina that I harvested. A native pig-like mammal. That. I, again, I know the life it lived. I know the ecosystem yeah. that it lived. And I also took pride in that both my javelina that I harvested were down in a single shot. That there, was, there was no suffering. It, it was down, I'm over, sure. that's it. Yeah. Being mainly a bird hunter, you know, I my connection to, to like ducks isn't quite the same. But 
like a wound one, I feel bad, but it doesn't hit me as hard. If I, if I shoot a deer and it, it doesn't die right away, it, you know, the emotions are there. Right. Dropping an animal is just the best case scenario. You, you, you don't want take ethical you don't want, shots. You don't want your you thing that you're going to harvest to suffer. suffer. Yeah. It's making another being, another creature suffer. It just sucks. It does. It yeah. does. It's part, part of it, frankly. And, and if they do suffer, it, it, it makes you feel better. The suffering is not as bad as if a native predator ripped their guts out. Well, if for a cougar, two if a cougar hours. took that javelina <laughs> I mean, versus the person missed shooting, it's a lot more gruesome story. if it happens, you know, naturally or from another species. Right. We are still, I guess, part of the natural world as much I, as we feel like we're so, separated. It's so from funny it. that we love to like. I feel like sometimes we love to make ourselves. I feel like taller than the natural mm-hmm. world. Other folks, I feel mm-hmm. like, like to make ourselves a part of it. But yeah. there's, I feel like, there's so much in the almost in the human spirit that mm-hmm. we love to be above mm-hmm. when in reality we're. And hunting is a way to, to reconnect with 100%. Our, our evolutionary history. Yeah. we and, Again, and, he, humans have always been hunters. That's been a yep. part of the... I would say, you know, it's one of those things, like, just as much as seeing wildlife, traveling the world, and seeing creatures great and small, hunting, I think, brings you closer back to, again, those primal roots, mm-hmm. those that lizard part of your brain. Yep. It brings you closer to it. I yeah. think that it feels good. It feels good. It, not it, not the death of the animal, but right. the, the, the harvesting and the the pursuit, and then the, the eating the animal, and especially if you have any context for the ecosystem you're in. Like I, I'm very passionate about Texas ecosystems, and to it, eat an animal from this ecosystem is just like connects me more. And to know that you're a part of again paying for the yeah. conservation and, and then the conservation the system. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of something that most, I think your average American is probably disconnected from mm-hmm. is understanding yeah. the reality yep. and also the horrifying reality that, you know, one of the biggest issues that at least I've seen coming out of both my undergrad and masters is that with every generation, there are fewer and fewer hunters yeah. with every generation, which, you know, again, it's, it's interesting. It's the financial infrastructure mm-hmm. for conservation in this yeah. country for a different time. Yeah. We need those hundred dollars. And we need to also increase the ways we, you know, uh, generate revenue. Oh, for, for like, yeah. We, we, I mean, there's a lot of birders that spend a lot of money at state parks and, you know, they maybe donate to Audubon or um, there's, there's various outdoor wildlife groups that contribute, but they're not anywhere close to hunters. No. Just I, by the nature of how our model is. And we our model probably needs updated. It does. And I, I firmly believe diversify that. Our, our revenue stream or else I think we're going to be, you know, things are already worse in some situations, yeah. depending what state you're in. But right. I, you know, you go a couple generations down the line. I'm like, we're going to be in pretty, I, I remain shit. optimistic. You think so? But, uh, I mean, that's just because it's my nature. It's right. just to be optimistic. Otherwise I'll just be a depressed individual. Because <laughs> if you I'm... learn about ecology, you walk, you roam around the earth and you're depressed yeah, the whole time that... when you look at <laughs> degraded ecosystems. But yeah, uh, that's fair. But I mean, so, again, there's yeah. lots of programs though. Yeah. I would say though, on the other side of the coin that are looking to make, I think hunting a much more inclusive right. space and yep. bringing more folks into it and helping yeah. generate that connection to the land that hunting doesn't necessarily have to be this kind of evil concept, no. but it can be just something, yep. another way that you can recreate sustainably yep. in the outdoors. And, and it, it can be a, a big way to bridge the gaps between different pe- groups of people. You know, there's a lot of cultural, a lot of cultural um, issues in today's society. And like hunt, hunting is one of those things that a lot of people can, can really connect over. It's oh, so yeah. human to hunt. 
Yes. And unfortunately, you know, when you talk about like feeding an entire, you know, country population with harvesting, it's just not possible. No. We, we we have to have ag systems, unfortunately, for uh, Western civilization to run. But like, do. yeah, but the way we live, yeah, you know, are very sanitary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wish we can re- return to our, our primitive ways, but uh, man, let's finish up here with uh, what you're doing now. So you, you finish your, your, your bobcat work, um, then you moved on to an even more special cat that so, roams yeah. these so, lands. So you know, while I was actually doing my master's, I actually got to do a lot of uh, side man, uh, research and also uh, trapping for ocelots yep. for the lab that I was a part of. And so sure enough, as I was on the about to graduate East foundation was since again, I had been working on ourselves for the past two years. They're like, Hey, would you be willing to stick around and help us with the capture season? So currently I am the ocelot research assistant for East foundation. And so it's about the coolest title you could possibly have as like an early career wildlife biologist. It's a, it's a (laughs) pretty, it's a pretty good one. Again. Yeah. It's one of those things that there's only, you know, probably double digits worth of people who've ever handled an ocelot in in this country, North America, really in any, yeah. I mean the guy, what's his name? The main guy that started studying them. Uh, Mike, Dr. Michael Tuis. He's the first person in the world to ever trap an ocelot, right? Well, that no, we know not, of. not trap. I mean, you know, there are trappers in Texas beforehand. I mean, I think it was uh, or scientific interest, scientific yes. interest, at least in the United States. Okay, okay. I got you. Uh, yeah. Because people were trapping ocelots in droves in the 1940s and 30s. There's actually trapping logs of the record of numbers of pelts that actually from came ocelots. out of Yeah, from ocelots and jaguarundi too. Wow, that's that's, there, that's really yeah. Weird. It's really interesting when you go back to trapping records back when you know pelt the the not from, just South Texas either. No, yeah, not just Texas either. There's there are logs of showing where people would, you know, this is I trapped X amount of ocelot, and these are the number of pelts that got sent off to Europe. You know, was there any any noteworthy stuff from Southeast Texas that you can recall? Uh, not that I recall. This one specifically came down from South Texas, just from this one that I saw. But again, it included uh, notes about jaguarundi and ocelot. But what's the chance of jaguarundi still roams Texas? (sighs) None. We thought the same thing about ocelots until well, we, we did, but okay. So we, I was a part of a pub that came out last year, and we basically outlined that it is likely jaguarundis are extirpated from Texas. And when's the last one that was confirmed? Last one was 90s? confirmed was 1986, 80s. and it was a highway road mortality. Oh, so that's and, a good confirmation. And yeah. and in the past 40 years, there has not been a tier one sighting of either. You know, genetic evidence. Okay a photograph or even a roadkill is eDNA possible for such terrestrial uh, animals. No, I've, I don't work a whole lot with yeah. eDNA and I've always heard I've, that works better in aquatic environments. Yeah. That, working with crocs and turtles. Most of my career. That's always been something I've heard about. I mean, the closest uh, thing to that would be using scat dogs. But at that point I just go, I, yeah. I think it'd be almost more worth to use a scat dog for an ocelot than yeah. use it for a jaguarundi. But, but probably no jaguarundis. Probably not. Yeah. But again, that's the crazy thing about Texas is that most folks don't realize that this at one point used to be the cattiest state in the U.S. Yeah. We had six right. different cats that were here. Jaguar. So jaguar. Lions. Puma, yeah, puma. Puma. Bobcat. Ocelot, bobcat. Ocelot. Margay. Margay used to Nate. So again, this this is Pardon. just based on fossil record, but we have fossil evidence that Margay made it. So this maybe far. not in our modern epoch, but like maybe back 
you know, 10,000 plus years ago, Margay, when the landscape was different. When there were more forests. I mean, think think about, I mean, think about like East East Texas and also Louisiana. You're telling me that there's not enough forest for a little Margay? Oh yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that our understanding and the way we think about the geography of the Americas is very based in political boundaries. Yeah. But like, this is all, this is all a continuous landscape from here all the way down to South America. And like the biogeography of the place is consistent the whole way through. I mean, there's species here that exist in all the way down into like Guatemala or even further south. Birds, especially, you know, they travel. Well, well I mean, that's the crazy thing even when you think ocelots, about ocelots. Yeah. All the way down, lions. To Argentina. Canada to freaking Argentina. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this is one big, you know. And that's the crazy thing about ocelots is, you know, while they're endangered here in the United States, if you look at them in a broader context to the rest of their range, they're almost as near as abundant as bobcats are. Yeah. Bobcats of the Amazon, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, that's actually an interesting thing is that uh, there's, have you heard of the Leopardus effect? Mm. So one of the things is, uh, you know, some folks often say that, you know, coyotes and bobcats are, they're, they're reducing the chances that ocelots can survive in Texas. And I'm like, yeah. if you look again, go all the way down to central and South America, they're existing with many other ocelots are go toe to toe with almost every other mesocarnivore with the exception of jaguars and pumas. Yeah. You're telling me that they can't take on a coyote or a bobcat. Yeah. They might now, there might be something where, you know, bobcats and coyotes are getting more of the resources because there's more of them. Yeah. They, but I don't think coyotes and bobcats are actively killing ocelots out here. They, yeah. They're, I could see the fact that coyotes have, have, um, they've benefited so much from the removal of uh, Apex wolves predators. And, uh, Jack maybe too. they're just, yeah, there's the resource issue, you know, um, there's not enough space. Right. I can't remember. There's a, there's a fancy ecological word for that. That the, the amount of like space for them to exist. Home range. Um, but not not just home range. Multi like fast. Oh, multi dimensionality. Niche space. Niche space. Yeah, niche yeah. space. That's probably what I'm thinking of. But yeah, and so that's and that's the kind of the issue is when we don't because again we don't know where every single aspect of the ocelot population is, and that yeah. it comes down to landowners, but. Given what we do know, we only know that there's, you know, X amount of individuals with limited connectivity with one another. It's only a matter of, again, unless, you know, drastic measures are taken to either learn that there are more ocelots than we expect are out there, or if this is the only set, then we're going to start seeing the same genetic abnormalities that you know have been seen in cheetahs have been seen in mountain lions in los angeles or even florida panthers in uh, florida interesting it's just one of the many reasons that folks are trying to get the wheels rolling right get as much data as possible and also trying to get as much political action as possible is because that's the major issue part of it yeah so are you optimistic about the future of ocelots I think it's I think it's a mixed bag. I think that there's a lot of bright opportunities out there to help ocelots, and I think there things are looking. I think they're looking a lot better than they were, say, a decade ago or yeah. 15 years ago. I think there's a lot more attention coming their way, yeah. but I think there is always more room to consider and also evaluate. And they again, East Foundation has tons of teams at work that are trying to you know 
consider the population ecology, right. consider habitat, the, and, habitat yeah. considering. Yeah. And so there's so many avenues that they're hitting this from, but again, there's always more, I think to consider, I think there's significant, definitely potential room to look at the cultural aspect right. of conservation, yeah. because again, you know, we got to have community support. And I think that's the major, that's not that, something that's just in, you know, you know, random countries around that's, that's something important here too. And I think yeah. that I think that's def- and I think that definitely with Easts, uh, because, you know, they do these. Uh, have you heard of Behind the Gate? Mm-hmm. No. So they do these community outreach events that where they bring school children onto the ranch so okay. they can yeah. see what a working ranch is like, but then can see that they are multi-use landscapes. Yep. That here you can oh, do cattle and you can do wildlife, you can endangered do species waterfowl. conservation. Yeah. And so I think again, more of that is needed and should be done because again, I if you ask your average Texan. Do you know what an ocelot is? So many don't know. So many people have no idea. Deep in the heart, spread the word about ocelots. Oh, it definitely did. And it's a beautiful, fantastic documentary. But I think that's, I think that's one of the major things that still, uh, you know, I can always, and then, you know, East Foundation is working to improve that. That's good. And just on a positive note. Yeah. Conservation. Yeah. Oh, on a positive note for conservation? And just on a positive note here. Like, what do you what do you feel about the future? What do you feel about your career? Anything? I think that again, there's kind of a change in paradigm. I think that more and more folks, especially in our generation, mm. I think more. And our generation is very key to the biodiversity crisis. It is. It yeah. is very key to the biodiversity crisis, and it. I think we're way more sensitive, and we realize that stewardship of not just only our communities, not only just of our cities, of our states, or beyond just, you know, just the whole world really falls to us. And I think that there are a lot more in our generation who are answering that call. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes it does start out small. And, you know, and that's some, I think that is the, the easiest way to fall into pits of despair is feeling does me can't do anything. Can I do anything with these tiny actions? But then the one thing I I will say, you know, because you know, one of the things in high school that actually brought me a lot of joy when I did that earth watch trip, when I really, when I went on that trip and I met a community of people from all over the world who had the same compassion and desire to make things better just as much as I did. And that's, and that's one of the things that I have adored about, you know, connecting with people, but not only just on Instagram, but also on science Twitter, right? Seeing all the voices all over the world, all different walks of life, knowing that I am not alone and not only just my, I can again, I think just more just viewpoint because I think it's really easy to get lost in the kind of political craze of the times that we're in. Yeah. And, but it's nice to have those reminders that you are not alone in terms of how you look at ecosystems. You're not alone. How you look at wildlife. You're not alone. How you look at conservation and having, and having at least that foundational background gives me hope. I always hope conservation can cut through the culture wars. You know, I think it definitely can. I think it's, a, I think it's a, one of those, like, you know, one of those things that, man, we we should get. This is should be one thing that everybody can agree on. You know, we all we all love healthy ecosystems, and we all benefit from healthy benefit ecosystems. Ecosystem services, but uh, and you know, sometimes that conversation is more difficult to be had than others. Right, uh, the issue, yeah. but at the end of the day, I think everyone can universally agree that you know everyone needs clean water. Yeah, 
we need clean air and we need ecosystems yeah. that can function. We, we want to recreate. We want to, we want to engage with the natural world. We want to hunt, we want to fish, we want to hike, go birding and herping. And we want to appreciate things. it. We are part of the earth. And, uh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's should be universal, uh, you know, um, but yeah, man, that's a, that's a great ending note. Thank you so much, man. I'm really on. honored that you could have me out here. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Appreciate it. We'll, we'll end it right there. <laughs>